This is They Create World, episode 14. Nintendo playing with power. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we will be going over Nintendo. But not just any Nintendo. The Nintendo we knew as children. The one from the 80s. That's right. This was a period of time when everyone assumed that video games were going to be dead and never coming back. And then Nintendo came along and actually made a go of it. And... To do that, they had to innovate in a lot of ways. On the downside, though, many of these were very controlling and monopolistic ways, which have given Nintendo a bit of a bad rap over time. And some of that bad rap is certainly justified, but I would argue that without Nintendo taking some of the steps they did, we wouldn't have the same video game industry today. Obviously, interactive entertainment would have eventually found a way, but who knows what it would have looked like. It would have certainly been a very different landscape especially considering how utterly decimated the video game industry has been with the crash after Atari. Exactly, and it's become somewhat fashionable today amongst more hardcore gamers to question the extent of the crash and its effect on video game playing. The argument will often be, well, I never stopped playing video games, so video games weren't dead. Mm, and that, and that, that makes sense. But that doesn't really get to the full story. Certainly, if you were the type of gamer that was extra engaged with video games, if you eat, ate, slept, and breathed Atari and Intellivision and ColecoVision, you were going to find a way to keep playing games. And they were certainly still out there. I mean, even though they were liquidating and everything crashed, the games were still out there. It wasn't like you got your birthday money and you couldn't go down to the grocery store or the video game store or any store and go, hey, merchant, here's some money bringing me games. Right, because there were very heavily discounted video games still out there. And, of course, there were home computers. And so what a lot of people that were very into gaming in the early to mid-'80s, the narrative they've constructed for themselves is consoles died, but we still had home computers, so there was still video gaming going on. And then it just kind of switched back to consoles again when Nintendo came out. But Nintendo didn't save anything. There was already a video game industry. There were already people playing games. That's a skewed view. Well, it's certainly one that takes a view from after the fact, 2020 hindsight. Right. And it's not even true of what most people were doing at the time, because, again, these are the people that were so interested in games that they were always going to actively seek out games. That was not the majority of the populace. In 1983, which was the height of the video game industry in terms of dollar volume, the industry was worth just north of $3 billion. This is just the home industry. We're not talking arcades or home computers or anything else, just the console industry, mm -hmm. hardware and software. By 1985, the video game industry was a $100 million industry. $3 billion, $100 million. Which is a significant decline. That's ridiculous decline. And the home computer market was not the same. The amount of sales in home computer games were not nearly 
as big as in the video game industry. And some of that was piracy. More people were playing games than, than bought them. I would also argue that you didn't have as big a penetration with computers being in the home. I mean, I certainly grew up with a Commodore 64, but I know Alex didn't really have a main computer until the 90s, right? Well, we had a computer, but we had just an IBM 286 processor. It really wasn't the kind of system made for gaming. It was really more a system for word processing and all of that kind of thing. Right, I didn't have a gaming machine. Home computers got very big in the early 80s, and then that market actually crashed, too, due to a ruinous price war instigated by Jack Tramiel. But the important thing is that even when the home computer game market was doing well, it was a fraction of the size. A hit game in the early 1980s on a computer platform is going to be selling 80 to 100,000 copies. Mm -hmm. A really big hit could get up to the 250,000 copy range, and that was about it. Now, piracy obviously accounts for some of that, but even when you take piracy into account, this was a much, much smaller market than a video game market, home console market, where the best-selling games were selling in the 4 to 5 million range. A mm -hmm. hit was a million units. A big hit was 4 to 5 million. Even okay. taking piracy into account, it's not the same because the VCS and its competitors, they were plug-and-play systems. A home computer, as we've talked about before, in 1983 was not a plug-and-play system. You turn the power on and you've got a green cursor staring back at you. You had to have a certain level of competency in order to even operate the thing to get past post effectively. And a lot of people do not have those kind of skill sets or the inclination to learn that skill set. You even don't even really have that today. A lot of people buy computers straight from big box retailers or online. They come preloaded, pre-set up for you to do your thing. You can do your game. But if something goes significantly wrong or even moderately wrong, most people have no clue how to resolve the issue. That's exactly correct. And... This is what the majority of people want out of their computer. Now, those of us who were dedicated gamers, we, of course, dug a little deeper. Even someone like me, who never, ever considered getting involved in programming, knew how to get into his auto-exec bat and his config sys and modify what drivers were loading in order to get his games to run in the mid-90s when memory management was just a mess pre-Windows 95. And you don't even have things like that today with modern PC gamers. I would argue that they know less about how to get some of the games to work than uh, we do. I would say so. And so kind of the key to mass market computer gaming is making computer gaming as easy as possible. And you saw this again. You kind of had a period where home computer gaming started to get a little more mainstream once Windows 95 hit because you had plug-and-play capability of hardware and you had effective memory management that meant so long to all of that boot disk nonsense that we used to have to live through. And then you had kind of another decline after that, and then you had a second wave of revival when Steam came along, because Steam made it very easy to make sure it was a back-end system that ensured hardware compatibility and ensured that your games remained updated without have you having to fiddle with much. And it's always when PC gaming becomes easier from a technical standpoint that PC gaming gets bigger. And so, yes, for that subset of gamers that were very dedicated, video gaming did not go away because of the Atari crash. For the general public, and one cannot make this clear enough, video gaming went away after the Atari crash. 
it was completely gone. It was dead, gone in the water. It was seen as a fad by the public that had come and gone. I don't go out and buy Little Johnny a video game anymore. If I do, it's usually stuff that I dealt with a few years ago, and there's nothing new coming out on this thing. You need to have the console be easy and accessible enough so that when people come to it, they don't have to think too much about playing the game. The fact that they can just slap a cartridge or something into a console, plug it in with the minimal amount of cables into my television, and go, the less thinking, the better. That is absolutely right. But these people that make this narrative are correct about one thing. The demand for video games didn't really go away so much amongst the public. What happened is that retailers had decided that video games were a fad. They were scared to death about getting involved in that industry again. And it was retailer resistance that meant that the video game industry completely died. Because in 1983, 1984, 1985, they were still awash in VCS games and ColecoVision and Intellivision, but especially VCS games because that was the lead product. I mean, it's hard to overstate how much product was thrown into that channel. There was basically 200% of market demand in the channel in the kind of 82-83 period. And so they were feeling the effect of that for years afterwards. It's hard to liquidate that much product and turn anything resembling money out of it. It's effectively, I'm losing money left and right because I have all these cartridges I put all this money into. It cost me $5 to create this cartridge, and I can't even sell it at cost. Exactly. And a lot of buyers at a lot of retailers lost their jobs over this. So if you were coming to a retailer and saying, hey, I've got this video game I want to sell, the guy's going to basically say to you, so let me get this straight. I got this very nice, very cushy buyer's job that I have right now because my predecessor was fired for buying too many video games. And, and now you want me to buy your video games. No. <laughs> right. Not only no, but expletive deleted no. Exactly. And and that's kind of important to, to realize because the other part of this kind of false narrative is that, well... I still played games, and my friends were still re still really into games. So video gaming never died. But on the retail side, it was gone. You couldn't buy new games. There was a period of time where what was on the VCS five years ago is what was available to purchase five years later. You had no real development of games, especially for the consoles. That's exactly correct. And nobody was going to get back into making consoles in the United States because Atari had self-destructed. The company was broken apart. Of course, that Atari name, as we've discussed before, has kept going and going and going. But the crash was the end of the Atari that existed throughout that initial video game boom. Mattel would have gone bankrupt. They were saved basically at the last moment by Michael Milliken, the so-called junk bond king, who basically, when the management of Mattel came to him looking for help, said, Barbie can't go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And personally invested more than he really needed to, more than may have been smart, to help keep that company afloat. But Mattel, the toy giant, was would have gone under. Would have gone under mostly because of video games. Coleco was able to survive because they were lucky that just as their entire video game 
uh, development was blowing up, Cabbage Patch hit really big. For a couple of Christmases, Cabbage Patch was the toy. There were literally moms fighting each other physically in the aisles trying to get those last few Cabbage Patch dolls on the shelves, how, just like out, out of some Christmas comedy or something. I mean, this was really happening. Fights in stores over these dolls. So Coleco managed to save itself because they happened to get another hot fad item right as video games were dying. Otherwise, Coleco probably would have gone under too. And of course, Cabbage Patch didn't sustain them forever. Coleco did eventually go under because they never managed to diversify their product line again. So all of the companies that were heavily invested in video games were dying left and right. There was not going to be another American company that was going to get into this quagmire. And so we have Japan and Nintendo, or the Famicom, as they called it in Japan, comes over to the United States and says, Hey kids, here's a video game console. It's simplified. You can just plop it into your television. And here's a bunch of cool cartridges and games. Here's Mario. Here's Zelda. Everything's wonderful. Sunshines and lollipops. And of course, all the retailers in America are like, You have got to be kidding me. Yeah. I got this very cushy buyer's job because my predecessor was fired for buying too many video games. And now you want me to take this toy from Japan and put it on my store shelves. And no. <laughs> well, honestly, they did have an uphill battle. And the reason that the Nintendo in the United States looks so different from the Famicom in Japan is because of these biases. In Japan, the Famicom did look like a kid's toy. It had bright colors. You had a bunch of different buttons that had more colors on it. You can even see that with the Super Nintendo. The X, Y, A, B buttons were actually a whole bunch of different colors. If you actually take a old Super Nintendo controller apart and look underneath, the plastic is still imprinted with what the colors are supposed to be. Well, something that Alex and I found out fairly recently when I had to take apart one of my controllers in order to clean it clean the contacts um and i saw this and i had to show them because it was so interesting <laughs> but they made it really simplified so it looked more like the black and white gray systems that you would have in your typical living room at the time and they didn't call it a game system they didn't call it the famicom disc system they didn't call it something like that they would call it a different name the nintendo entertainment system nes and the reason for that name is to divorce itself from it being a toy. Exactly. And it had that look like a stereo component. The reason it's front-loading, just like the VCS and those systems, the Famicom in Japan was a top-loading system. And just like the Super Nintendo uh, that we got in the United States and the Genesis, it was a top-loading system. But they changed it on the NES to have that door in front and pushing it in because that resembled how you loaded a VCR. And so it's like a VCR that I can plug in and do. And so that's something relatable and VCRs are always doing well. Exactly. And, you know, like you said, they called it an entertainment system. And they did not call their cartridges cartridges because boy was cartridge a dirty word at this point because retailers were all washing cartridges. No, these were game packs. Game packs. Not Language, kids. That's how we shape how things go. That's right. So they made all of these changes, uh, which was very important, and they still couldn't get much traction. 
there was still nobody willing to take this chance because basically they had to convince retailers that this was a product that A, was going to sell, and B, even if it didn't sell, retailers weren't going to be stuck eating because retailers don't like eating product. And as we've t discussed in previous episodes, generally speaking, retailers don't eat product. They the, send it back to the manufacturer. Right. But in the case of the crash, most of these manufacturers were companies that had just been established. They were just established to take advantage of this boom. They had no resources. They had no way to absorb returns. And so these companies just went belly up. And so then the retailers had no place to return the product, which is why they ended up in bargain bins at the front of the store. And they, because they had no place to return the product, they can't get their money back on stuff that won't sell. So they have to eat the loss because they don't have any place to return and get their money back. Exactly. So just a disaster all around. So this is the kind of situation that Nintendo was coming into. Now, Japan in this time period, not so much anymore, was basically always about three years behind what was going on in the American video game slash electronic games industry. Mm -hmm. So in 1975, the dedicated Pong consoles become big for the first time in the United States. And they're big in 75, 76, market starts to go south in 77, and then they're gone. Right. In Japan, while there was an attempt in 1975 to create a dedicated Pong-style console, the market there didn't really develop until 1977. Hmm. And it was actually Nintendo that led that market as well. And they had a big dedicated console boom in 77, 78, started doing less well in 79, and then fell off. So just two or three years behind. Mm -hmm. Then in the U.S., the handheld electronic games really came in. You kind of had the programmable consoles coming in too, but the programmable consoles didn't get really big until about 1980. And so from in 78 and 79, the really big products were the electronic handheld and tabletop games like Mattel's famous football game or like Milton Bradley's Simon, which is still made today, but was humongous in those first couple of years there. And so in Japan, when the dedicated consoles started falling apart in 79, that's when their electronic handheld market started getting really big. And again, Nintendo was one of the big players in this market as well with Game & Watch, which mm -hmm. became so big in 1980. So they had a big boom in the handheld games in 1980, 1981, 1982, two or three years later. And while the U.S. was getting into programmable systems uh, more and more, starting in 80 with the release of Space Invaders on the VCS and with the nationwide launch of the Intellivision, the Japanese market didn't start really embracing programmable until about 82, 83. Hmm. So since they're always a few years behind... Just as the Atari market is falling completely apart in the United States is the moment that Japan is starting to have a viable home console market for the first time. And because they're a little bit behind, they can take advantage of a little bit better hardware and capabilities. Exactly. So the Famicom was much better than, of course, the VCS and the Intellivision, and even better than the ColecoVision as well, though the margins were much closer there. And they had a quality product that was selling very well in Japan. But they knew that the real money was probably going to be in the United States, just because it's a larger market. 
So once they had the product established in Japan, which took a couple of years, it launched in 83. It did okay in 83, but not great. Mm-hmm. It was really in 1984 that it started building and building. So by 1985, the Famicom is well enough established in Japan that they feel like it's time to try to come to the United States. Okay. And they had actually tried right at the launch of the system to come to the U.S. Because right when they were launching, there was still a U.S. video game market. And they actually had to deal with Atari. Hmm. That was almost done. They were in the last stages of negotiating it, and then Ray Kassar was fired, and the video game market fell apart, and so that deal never happened. What Basi- was the deal? Uh, well, I, I'd have to look again to see the exact parameters of the deal, but basically, Atari would get the rights to sell the Famicom outside of Japan. Mm-hmm. Nintendo would provide a certain number of Famicom boards, you know, the hardware inside the Famicom, would provide a certain number of boards at whatever the royalty rate was, and then Atari would put those boards in whatever casing they wanted and market that system. And there was a deal on games and, and game royalties and whatnot, too. Would it have so. been marketed as a Nintendo thing, or would it be marketed as an Atari thing that just happened to have the Nintendo components. I believe it would have been marketed primarily as an Atari thing. Hmm. And so they were looking at this. They weren't necessarily going to do it because they also, at the same time, they were building their own system, or rather a contractor called General Computer Corporation was building another system, which was the Atari 7800. Mm -hmm. And Nintendo was not necessarily going to get that deal with Atari because Atari was still mulling its options between the 7800 and the Famicom. Mm -hmm. So who knows what happened? And what also might have happened is Atari might have even decided to sign the deal and then sit on the Famicom, not release it, and release the 7800 instead. Oh, that would have been nasty. Exactly, but they would have been within their rights depending on the contract and the circumstances. But we'll never know what happened because, of course, then the market blew up. And so they never got anywhere. But then once Nintendo was very well established in Japan with the Famicom, they were looking, of course, to come over again. And Nintendo had had a U.S. operation for some time because they'd been in the American arcades. Mm. So they were going to send the system over and market it themselves now through Nintendo of America because they had a a well-established operation. They'd done a little bit of work in the consumer field. They'd tried to introduce the Game & Watch in the United States, which never caught hold. It was never the big hit it was in Japan. But by now they did have a consumer division of their uh, American branch, so they were just going to go through and do it themselves now, obviously. Yeah. So in 1985, Nintendo brings the redesigned Famicom to CES as the advanced video system. And this Hmm. is a different look than what we finally got. It was still the same idea of let's kind of hide the fact a little bit that it's a video game system Mm -hmm. because they understood that video games were a dirty word. But it looked very different. It was sleeker, less angular, black instead of gray. Mm -hmm. They were kind of advertising it as having wireless kind of infrared controllers and maybe a musical keyboard attachment and all of this stuff. This was not something they actually built, you understand. What they were doing at this CES is here's a mock-up of something we might do. Did they have Rob at that point? No, not at this point. Okay. And they're basically just saying, here's a mock-up of something we might do. Mm -hmm. How would you, the retailers or the buyers feel if we introduce something like this so it's not like there's some long lost infrared controller 
prototype sitting at Nintendo or a long lost keyboard attachment prototype sitting at Nintendo because they didn't actually build this stuff. This was just kind of a testing the waters meeting and nobody was interested. Hmm. Not one person was interested. And so they went back to the drawing board again. They redesigned the console uh, to look like it finally did in the United States. And this is the point where they decided, okay, we want this to be a game system. Let's throw out this piano nonsense and whatever else nonsense. But let's market it really as a toy, not a video game. Hmm. I mean, video games at this point are considered toys, but we're not marketing it as a video game. We're going to market it as a different kind of toy. And so what we'll do is we'll make a zapper, a gun, a light gun for it, because mm -hmm. Nintendo has a lot of light gun games in the arcades that do very well. And they understand the technology. Of course. And then let's introduce this Trojan horse, this robot, robotic operating buddy, Rob. Rob. So you have to understand, at this time, robots were very big. Everyone wanted a robot. Exactly. And so a robot toy really tapped into kind of the zeitgeist of what was going on. And of course, no actually really good robot toys or even non-toys actually appeared in this period. But everyone thought robots were right around the corner at that point. And everyone wanted in on that. Yep. And so a robot toy was cutting edge and new and cool. So what they did is they emphasized that it was a robot and gun toy mm -hmm. and de-emphasized the fact that it was a video game. You know, in the mid-80s, of course, when you bought an NES, you got Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt. Yep. At the beginning, Super Mario Brothers was not packaged with that system. In the beginning, it was the Rob packaged with the system and the deluxe set, and you got Duck Hunt, you got a gun game, and you got one of the games for Rob. And there's only like two games for Rob. Gyromite and Stack Up, that's correct. Yeah. Because they dumped that very quickly once they realized that they didn't need it. But it was an important first step to trying to get the system noticed by buyers. It let them get their foot in the door. At least that was the hope. That was the theory. So they put that whole package together, and they were doing focus tests. It still doesn't look like they're going to be able to get any traction. Hmm. So what they finally decide to do is they figure they're going to have to do a test market. They're going to have to convince the United States and the buyers in the United States that video games are not dead by selling it in one place, putting a lot of advertising dollars behind it, really pushing in that one place to convince retailers all over the country that this is actually going to sell. And that was New York, right? And that was New York. That's right. They figured they should start in the hardest market. They figured if they could sell in New York, which is a very overstuffed, overcrowded, very cynical market that isn't just going to accept anything that comes along, then they can sell it anywhere. Hmm. And so, of course, that's why they do the famous New York test launch. And in this, they were aided by a fellow named Sam Borofsky, who doesn't get much credit in most sources. In fact, I'm not sure he got any credit until just a couple of years ago when a fellow named Blake Harris wrote a book called Console War on the SNES Genesis rivalry, mostly focused on Sega, but also including portions of the Nintendo story as well. Mm -hmm. And Sam Borofsky was a rep on the East Coast, a sales rep. We've talked about sales reps before, how they serve as the middleman between your hardware manufacturer and your actual retailers. Mm -hmm. And he was a rep on the... East Coast, and he had been one of Atari's most successful reps. 
he claimed that uh, at one point his company, Sambrowski Associates, accounted for uh, 30% of Atari's entire sales nationwide. Hmm. So he understood the business inside and out. And he also very strongly believed that video games were not dead, that video games could actually come back, that there could be public interest again. And he took it upon himself when he learned that Nintendo was going to be doing this. He took it upon himself to contact Nintendo and offer his expertise. Really? And he gave them two very important pieces of advice that I think were critical to Nintendo being successful, not just in the New York test market, when they rolled out the system nationwide. And this also kind of was the starting point of kind of Nintendo's control of the market. Okay. So this is where Nintendo starts to... Get the idea for some of what they end up doing. Okay. First of all, he told them that the main reason the retailers were scared is because they got stuck with all that inventory. So he said the first thing you've got to do is you have to promise them dollar matching on all of their inventory. Basically, if the systems and the software doesn't sell within however many days they want to set up, 30 days, 90 days, whatever terms they want to make. Right. Anything that is still on the shelf after 90 days, Nintendo will give you dollar matching for all that inventory. They'll pay you back for that inventory, essentially. So the retailers aren't going to take any kind of losses here. No risk for retailers. That was Sam Borofsky's idea, and that proved to be the main thing that kind of broke the log jam amongst in, uh, amongst New York retailers when they were trying to get the NES in stores is that they personally guaranteed every piece of stock. Now, they didn't do that forever and ever, but for that New York test market, they needed to do that. That's the only way they could penetrate in there is to say, take our thing, please take the risk. If it doesn't work out for whatever reason... We will pay you the amount of money it takes to buy that stuff back. Right, so there's no risk to the retailer. The other thing he said that was very important is because he lived through the the original Atari boom. Basically, not just the video game industry, but the entire consumer electronics industry, digital watches, calculators, electronic handheld games, CB and ham radios, each one of these electronic areas uh, in that were active throughout the 70s and early 80s went through periods of rapid boom and bust cycle. Hmm. Basically what happened is a brand new shiny came on the market. Everybody loved the brand new shiny. Too many companies jumped in and started making the brand new shiny. The buyers who didn't have enough of the brand new shiny when it was brand new overcompensate in their ordering and order way too much of the brand new shiny, and then market collapses due to oversaturation. Hmm. This had happened over and over and over again. Calculators, digital watches, CB radios, dedicated consoles, electronic handhelds, programmable consoles. This is the way it kept happening. And so Sam Brosky knew this because he lived through all of this as a buyer, and he told Nintendo, you have to under-deliver inventory. Never, People are going to over-order. Do not fulfill everything. Exactly. Never give people as much as they want because then they'll end up asking for too much. And so this was kind of the beginning of the idea of the Nintendo-controlled market. Obviously, in New York City, they just have their 100,000 consoles and their sporting software, so they're not doing this in New York City. They're getting as much out as they can, as much as they can make, literally. But as the market develops... 
this is what they do. They maintain complete control of the market. They almost create an artificial scarcity in order to maintain demand. That's exactly what they did. I mean, they wouldn't under underdo it by much. They also didn't want to deny themselves profits, but they were always very conservative. And this was important because every single kind of electronic doodad up to that point had gone through this overheated pay phase that sunk the market. Nobody had any control before. And Atari, even if they had wanted to, and of course they didn't because they kept acting like they were 100% of the market, even if Atari had wanted to, they couldn't have controlled the market because once the cat was out of the bag and the VCS had been reverse engineered by other people, anybody could make product for that VCS system, that 2600. So Nintendo had to, in addition to all of this, come up with a way to make it so that only them or their approved people can make games that will work on a Nintendo. That's right. And that's where we got the lockout chip, the 10 nest chip that basically was a kind of sign countersign thing where it would shoot a piece of code at the cartridge. And then the cartridge was supposed to shoot a piece of uh, code back as response. And as long as you got that handshake between the console and the cartridge, your game worked. And if you didn't get that handshake between the two of them, then it didn't play. And that's why uh, nowadays, if you try to get some old Nintendos and Nintendo games to work, a lot of them fail is because that chip is starting to fail in those systems. Um, there are actually guides on how to like bypass the chip on the circuit board so that all the games will work on it, and a lot of games become more stable by doing that. But they had to do it then in order to prevent people from creating these kind of systems. There were a lot of people trying to circumvent it and a few were semi-successful you can tell that with some of the weirder looking cases that you might see in a few nintendo games but usually those system games did not work very well nor i think there was like one where you had to you had the game you put that in and then you had to have another nintendo game plugged in in order to make it work because they were saying okay yeah, we're officially this game over here, but uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And the Famicom didn't have a lockout chip in Japan, but Nintendo realized that they needed to maintain control of the software. And again... Clearly, that's a kind of monopolistic practice, and clearly that's something that would be very frowned on today and I don't think should be done today. Absolutely not. And so this this allowed them to have an incredible amount of power in deciding what could and could not be on their system, much more power than companies exercise today. And certainly today, the level of control Nintendo exerted would not be a good thing. We need some freedom in the marketplace. But the thing that one has to understand about this early period is there were a lot of bad games on the VCS because it turns out that creating games for the VCS was very difficult, much more difficult than on modern systems. You only had 128 bytes, not kilobytes. Not megabytes. Bytes of RAM on that system. And you didn't have a frame buffer. You were actually drawing the graphics on the fly, and you were actually having to sync all of your activities to the refresh rate of the television. So you're having to put in your interrupts in the cycles every one sixtieth of a second, et cetera, et cetera, to actually drive this system. 
So that is ridiculously hard, even for a talented programmer, to get a system like that to do much of anything. And the only games on there that really showed the power of the system were the ones where the coders could really take advantage of that and understood it well enough in order to cause different things to happen. The fact that you could even have Pac-Man on the VCS is because they took advantage of little flaws in order to load things differently. That's right. And most of these companies that popped up overnight, almost literally overnight, to take advantage of this boom, did not have that kind of competent programming talent. Now, some of these guys, maybe if they had had three or four years to play around with the hardware, maybe would have gotten kind of good at it. But you couldn't expect someone in a company founded in 1981 that plans to have its first products out by holiday 1982, you could not expect them to learn that system fully. So there were a lot of just disastrous games. I mean, we're not just talking games that aren't very good, because you always have games that aren't very good. But we're talking about buggy and temperamental and... You're lucky if it even runs in the system. Right. So there was a lot of garbage, and that really eroded consumer confidence. I think when most people talk about the causes of the crash, they somewhat overstate the impact of really bad games. It was really about there being too many games, far more than it was about bad games. But that still being said, that still erodes consumer confidence because you can't know that the game you're about to get to buy, whether it's any good or not. And when you're talking about spending thirty four ninety five in nineteen eighty two dollars on a video game, that's significant investment. And you want to make sure that you're coming home with a game that you can play for a long time afterwards. Exactly. And you always take the risk that you're not going to like the game that you buy, especially if you don't do research and read reviews and whatnot first, because everyone has different tastes. And quite frankly, some games just aren't very good. But when you're not even sure that you're going to get a game that plays properly, that's really bad when you're spending that much money, at least in the computer game market there was a lot of risk in the computer game market that you'd get something that was absolutely terrible but at least you were only out you know 10 or 20 bucks not 35 bucks you know yeah i know and that's why you had nintendo come up with the nintendo quality seal that's right and the nintendo seal of quality was entirely a marketing gimmick because it's not like some games got the seal and some games didn't. It's just everything that Nintendo had approved would get that seal. And it was kind of a marketing ploy to get the consumer to believe that they were getting high-quality product. Now, not all of those games, obviously, that came out on the NES were any good. But the important thing is, is they were rigorously tested. They had to work they had to be bug free now i know all you speedrunners out there are saying nes games bug free (laughs) (laughs) but you have to remember there's a complete difference between somebody looking to actively break a game and little johnny who just wants to play the game from start to finish and have some fun Even though Nintendo games have a lot of glitches and bugs in them, most of them only show up under the strangest of circumstances and only if you actually go hunting for them. Very much edge cases. It's not the case where you go, I'm just trying to do this sequence in the game that seemed to be obvious to what you're trying to do. And, oh, look, I seem to have clipped off the edge of the game and now I'm running through RAM with a character. (laughs) You... 
it's not like speed running where, okay, if you hit A, B at the same time, left and right, which you can't physically do on the controller, but if I break the controller in this way, that I can do that, where I can do left and right at the same time and I can't handle that, and then now I get to jump off into RAM. No. This is, I can just do the stuff I would expect to do in the game, a reasonable person would do in a game. I know that if I hit the edge of the wall, I'm going to hit a wall. I'm not going to somehow clip through the wall. Right, and the games will be finishable. If it's a game that has multiple stages and then an ending sequence at the end of it, you can be rest assured that you'll be able to play through all the stages and get to the end. Now, of course, there were literally hundreds of NES games. There were a few games and a few bugs that slipped through. It's not like NES games were completely bug-free. But when you consider the complexity of the software, the sheer volume of software, and the overall scarcity of real game-breaking bugs... It is pretty darn impressive what Nintendo was able to accomplish. And that was entirely down to Nintendo's own testers. Because every game that a third party put out had to be submitted to Nintendo for rigorous testing first. And it was only when Nintendo's testers had absolutely no more notes for the third party on things to fix that that game could actually be released. And of course, the third party had no recourse because they required that 10 NES chip from Nintendo, or their product wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. So, again, this is an incredible level of control, but you're coming out of a market when anybody could create anything, and there was no one serving as a gatekeeper to make sure that that product actually worked properly. Restoring consumer confidence required a certain level of trust that a video game you bought that worked on a Nintendo Entertainment System was actually going to work. So again, we look at it from a modern perspective and say, wow, that's exerting way too much control in the marketplace, but would we even have a marketplace today if Nintendo hadn't exerted some of that control? Well, you can see that today. You, there, How many times have you bought a game that's new on Steam, something that you pre-ordered, the latest Arkham Knight, oh, yeah. for example, that came out, and it had major, major game-breaking bugs. Major problems with that thing. And yeah, I know, this is console versus PC here. But think about it. If that kind of game comes out on a console, or even the fact that it came out on the PC, it clearly was not finished. It clearly had a lot of problems with it. And that kind of thing would not fly in the 80s when under Nintendo because that would be something that would cause people to lose complete confidence in trying to purchase games for a fledgling, floundering, very much in its infancy, video game industry. And you don't have the infrastructure to support that kind of thing. I mean, the saving grace for a lot of games now, even with consoles, is that Publishers can, yeah, they can push out more buggy stuff and a lot of grumbling about that. But the saving grace is they can push out a patch for that. They can fix and address major game-breaking issues as they come up, even though they should probably put more effort beforehand. But you couldn't do that. There is no way to hook up the Nintendo, even though they, they were thinking about going that way. But you can't really hook up the Nintendo to the Internet and go, oh, download the updated version of Mario World. Right, exactly. And one, you know, I would argue it's a it's a bit of a tangent, but I would argue that while patching seems like a great idea, 
in principle and practice, it kind of is slowly leading to the ruination <laughs> of that, the console industry. I mean, look that's at what I would. Yeah, I know, that's what I'm saying here. But, but I'm just saying, look at Street Fighter Five. You used uh, you used a specifically PC example, but look at Street Fighter Five, okay. which at the time of this taping has just launched. That's on console. It's a complete disaster. But these days, you know, there's so much emphasis on pre-ordering. And they're trying to get as many pre-orders as possible. And they do all these collector's editions through pre-orders. And so the emphasis is on getting everyone to buy the game before it even comes out. And so then they figure, we've got your money. So we can go ahead and release the game. And then we'll just patch it later. When we feel like it. It's terrible. But since so many uh, sales are through pre-orders now... They figure, well, we've already got, I don't know the exact figures, so I'm completely making this up, but it's like, we've got 60% of our buy-in already through pre-orders. So we don't need to release a game that is completely finished because we've already made our money off of it. So better to get it out there, get a few more people to buy it, and then and patch it afterwards. And this is why a lot of uh, websites have started launching campaigns to try to get people to stop pre-ordering games. because. Yeah, in the last few years, there have been a lot of big campaigns with uh, a lot of prominent reviewers going, stop pre-ordering games because these people are literally taking advantage of gamers by putting out shoddy product before it's finished and released. They aren't deserving of the trust to get the money before the game comes out. It may have been the case earlier when you could do that, but not so much anymore because enough companies have realized that, oh... I can get people to pre-order this game and give me the money beforehand if I promise them DLC, extra bits, extra things that, that unlock if I give them this pre-order. Then they put out a game that doesn't live up to the expectations and what recourse does the gamer have? That's right. And this is the kind of behavior that Nintendo could not and would not tolerate. And so when you have that Nintendo seal of quality, even though that was basically just a marketing ploy, and it didn't guarantee you a good game, it did at least guarantee you a game that was going to work. <laughs> and there was something to be said for that, considering what had happened in the previous generation. Of course, the other part of their rigorous testing and content control was the way they sanitized games and required that they adhered to a certain content standard. No excessive blood, no gore, no foul language... No religious symbolism. Any religious symbolism, even crosses. Yeah, I mean, occasionally a cross got through, obviously. I mean... Castlevania. Exactly. But, for instance, in Dragon Quest, it's kind of funny. I don't know why uh, Star of David slash Pentagram was considered a more ac <laughs> acceptable form of of symbolism. But in, in Dragon Quest, in Japan, all of the clerics that raised you from the dead and cured poison and whatnot, their symbol was a cross. Mm -hmm. And that didn't fly in the United States, so that was replaced with the the Star of David or the Pentagram or whatever it is you want to call that thing. Well, it I wouldn't call it the Star of David or I think it's a five point star as opposed to six. Right, and there's a dot in the middle of it. Um, it's more generic religious symbol than a specific religious symbol. But um, I mean, even with Castlevania, they tried to mute the level of the cross instead of it being a full obvious cross. When it was picked up as an item, it was more of a plus. Mm -hmm. And you can see that difference in the Japanese versus U.S. versions. Right. So they were very restrictive. And again, this is not something that we would want today. But you again have to put it in the context of the times. 
first of all, video games were for children back then. That isn't to say that there weren't some older kids or some adults that also played them, because there always have been, but video games were for children, and they were more specifically for 6- to 12-year-olds. And we want to make the world nice for 6- to 12-year-olds. Right, because parents aren't going to buy stuff for their 6- to 12-year-olds that is overly raunchy or subjective or gory or whatever else. Unlike now. (laughs) Yes, well... That as may be, you don't want to be tarred with that kind of image if you're peddling to younger kids. And it's important to remember that they are peddling to younger kids, not even teenagers. And the Atari system, obviously that system was so crude that there wasn't that much problem. You couldn't really depict excessive gore on a VCS. Nope. But, but there were a few adult games made, the most infamous of which was a title called Custer's Revenge. Yep where a Native American woman was bound to a pole, and here comes Custer weaving in, dodging arrows, so that he can come and rape Mrs. Indian woman. Native American, but I say Indian because the game's not politically correct, so we're using the not politically correct term that they used at the time. So he can come in and rape this Indian woman, and you can't really depict a very convincing penis on an Atari VCS, but there was a long pink line protruding diagonally from Mr. Custer's midsection. Yeah. That game um, was unique. The cartridge was actually in a box, I think, that had like some sort of lock on it that you could only, that the parent could like, put a code or something on it or a padlock or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that kind of thing. And the negative publicity from those games didn't have that huge an impact. I mean, they certainly weren't really a factor in the crash, but it was a sign of how Atari was losing control of the platform and the video game industry as it existed then couldn't police itself well enough to keep that kind of stuff contained. And when you've got something that's being marketed to children, you can't have that. You just can't have that kind of controversy bleeding in. And of course, the and NES... that's why Nintendo said... Here's the quality standard. Here's the line that we are not going to let you cross. Some people may say that's overly restrictive. Some people might even say it doesn't go far enough. But it was the line that Nintendo put down. That's right. So they did that. Of course, they had to address this oversaturation problem. We already talked about Samborowski and how he told them, make sure you always Mm underdeliver. That was an important part of what they did. Uh, They also made sure to keep the price up. And again, we get into monopolistic practices here that aren't necessarily great. It's one of these things you can't prove straight out, but it's stories of stories of stories. Nintendo would not let anybody lower the price of the NES at all. There are Mm. stories of companies that even tried, or stores that tried to even lower the price by like just a nickel, Mm -hmm. getting blowback from Nintendo. Sort of like uh, how Apple, Apple Computers, keeps a tight lid on its prices. Exactly. Because price erosion was a very real fear. Because if the market even got spooked just a little bit and there started to be price erosion, the crash is still recent memory at this point. As soon as those prices start eroding, that could cause the retailers to panic and just get out. Hmm. And so they were very careful to avoid that. They kept the price up. They underdelivered product. And this is why they had their restrictive covenants with third parties, where third parties could only release five games a year on the system. 
Yep, you had uh, with previously with the claim. They had five that they were allowed, and they were buddy buddy with Nintendo. But still, you are only allowed five. Right. Obviously, later on they let a claim by LJN, and they let Konami establish Ultra. So there was some slight bending of the rules, but they made them do special things in order to get those extra slots. They didn't just grant them five mm-hmm. extra slots. Again, this was kind of necessary to stop that oversaturation because the market would have certainly, almost certainly overheated again because all of these markets overheated. I know I said it before, but digital watches, calculators, CB radios, dedicated consoles, electronic handheld games, programmable consoles, everyone overheated because when the product was hot at the start, retailers couldn't get enough. And so then they would overorder to compensate the next time around, figuring that okay, well, I really want this much. But when I ordered this much, they only gave me this much. So if they only fulfilled 50% of my order last time, I'll ask for 150% of what I actually want. Mm -hmm. And then when they cut my order by 50%, I'll have exactly what I want. But of course, at the same time, the manufacturers are upping their production so they can meet higher levels of demand. So this time around the retailer actually gets that 150% of what they actually want. Mm -hmm. And so then the whole thing falls apart. So you have to keep the amount of product low when the industry is relatively young like this. Now, today, that kind of thing isn't necessary. I mean, the industry goes through up years and down years and whatnot, but it's robust enough that the market corrects. If a particular game is overproduced, the publisher of that game takes a hit, but as long as it's an established publisher, they can make that up in their other product. You know, nobody falls apart over this. Or maybe a smaller company goes out of business because they have a few bad games in a row, but it's just that one company going out of business. There are plenty of other companies in the industry that are very healthy and very robust. Forecasting is much more advanced now. The industry has been around long enough that the marketing people have a pretty good idea of what a game can sell. The industry is big enough and healthy enough that it can police itself now. It's much more mature. Back then, it was an infant. It was like sending a little baby off into the woods and hoping it survived. Sending a teenager off in the woods, it had a much better chance of surviving (laughs) than little baby. And so Nintendo is putting these controls out there to make sure that the baby is in a nice, safe realm in the woods. Exactly. And certainly, as I said before, I don't think anybody... I mean. Maybe Nintendo would like to return to those days. I don't know, because it's nice to be the king. But It's good to be the king. But nobody, you know, myself included, would really want to see a market that was that closed and that restrictive today. I think the industry has benefited greatly, obviously, by the competition. The Sega-Nintendo rivalry in the 90s spurred a lot of innovation and a lot of expansion of the industry. It helped get over this stigma of video games being just for children which allowed us to get over this Nintendo content policy thing and actually allow games to grow up, to have more gore and to have more adult situations and have more serious plots, etc., etc. Certainly, without the more open system, Sony couldn't have come in with the PlayStation and completely revolutionized the industry by moving it to 3D graphics and CD media much faster than... Nintendo and Sega would have on their own because Nintendo and Sega didn't think the industry was there yet. They were taking baby steps. Couldn't have Microsoft come in and bring a completely different PC mentality 
which allowed for this expansion of hard drives and DLC and Xbox Live and internet easier con- yeah internet connectivity exactly so it's good that this broke down and it was inevitable that it would break down Nintendo maintained tight control over its market in 86 87 88 89 and during that period of time, their market share kept growing and growing. They had 70% of the market by the end of 1987. Atari had about 15 to 20%. Sega had the last 5 to 10%. Then they moved from there, you know, up to 85 and then even up to 90, mostly at Atari's expense because Atari didn't have any staying power. Sega held on to their tiny little 5 to 10% sliver of the market that they had. And... Nintendo was in complete control because they represented such a big part of the retailer's profits, as we've talked about before, that Toys R Us couldn't afford to alienate Nintendo because there went most of Toys R Us's business if they alienated Nintendo. And Sega and Atari were far too weak to make up the difference. And that's why whenever back in the late 80s, if you went into a video game store, Toys R Us, Nintendo had this glassed-in, dedicated area that was literally a shrine unto Nintendo. You went in there. It was a religious experience for a little kid. You go in there and you're like, wow, look at all these big signs. Look at all these lights. Look at all these demo units. Look at all these game consoles and the zappers and these options and game packs. And I can switch, select from all of these. And here's a little magazine that shows all the prices and little reviews of it. Oh, here's Nintendo Power. Here's something that can help me if I have a problem with the game. Here's the Nintendo support line. Here's this nice, helpful salesperson who is going to explain to mom and tell mom why she needs to buy me this game. Yep. I mean, they had their stores within stores, the world of Nintendo concept. You know, there really wasn't a video game industry at this time. There was really more of a Nintendo industry at this time. At CES, all of the third parties were part of the Nintendo booth. Acclaim and Capcom, Konami, they didn't showcase their products separately in their own booths. There was a Nintendo booth. Or heck, a Nintendo wing. Or yeah, if you want to call it that. I mean, there was a huge booth and everyone was in there. One one of the later ones jokingly called the Death Star because it was just <laughs> so huge and encompassed basically the entire video game industry. Because with the exclusivity clause that they had as well, you know, five games a year exclusive for two years, none of these guys published on the other systems with the exception of like, Activision. Activision published on both, and by 1991 or so, Acclaim kind of sneakily was publishing on both. But basically, everyone was only publishing on the NES, so it was a Nintendo closed market. And Nintendo had its own magazine, Nintendo Power, and they didn't give information to the other magazines, like Electronic Gaming Monthly. They held all of their screenshots and tips and everything for their Nintendo house organ. And that's where you got your information on NES games. And not to mention your guides, tips, and tricks. You could get previews of games that are coming down the pipeline. And, heck, even if you went with the subscription model, you would get copies of the game. That's how we got Dragon Warrior 1. It's because we had a subscription to Nintendo Power. Well, that and Dragon Warrior 1 sold so horrendously in the United States that they were like, Oh my god, we've got all of these Dragon Warrior cartridges. What do we do with them? The answer is give them away for free, because Nintendo published Dragon Warrior. It wasn't Enix that published it in the U.S. We'll try not to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) And this worked because Nintendo really was a benevolent dictator. 
Now, that doesn't mean that it's good that you have dictators, but it's better to have a benevolent dictator than, say, Hitler. It's a velvet-coated iron glove. Well, they were fair, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. They would rate games internally. Of course, they would test all the games, as we talked about, and they would rate games internally using uh, expert game players. Started with a fellow named Howard Phillips, who was with the company from nearly its beginning and uh, became somewhat of a minor celebrity through his appearances in Nintendo Power and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then it expanded from him to some of their game counselors, because with The Legend of Zelda uh, being a more complex game than console gamers were used to, they set up a 900 number as a tip line for Legend of Zelda, which then expanded into being a tip line for all Nintendo games. And so they started expanding that rating to game counselors, and then they started expanding it to kids that they would bring in as part of focus groups. They would rate every single game. And not just the games that actually came out in the United States, but, you know, all the games in Japan when they're trying to figure out which games to to bring over as well. And they had a 40-point rating system. Hmm. And how well the games did in that rating system determined how many they'd manufacture, because third-party publishers we've talked about before were beholden to Nintendo for their manufacturing as well. Of course, those publishers put in requests for how many they wanted made, But Nintendo would decide how many they actually made. And, of course, they'd normally make a little less than what the publisher wanted because they wanted to make sure they always were under-delivering. Right, and that's why a few times you would have a game that unexpectedly blew up as being really popular and it was really, really scarce and you couldn't get your hands on it. Exactly correct. So using this 40-point system, they decide how many to make. They would decide how much coverage to give it in Nintendo Power. They would decide how much marketing money to put behind it. But the thing is, they were fair. There was no bias towards Nintendo games, games made by Nintendo itself. Every single game was put through the same rating process. Every single game was assigned to value fairly. And they did not give preference to Nintendo-made product. If the Nintendo-made product was the best product, it got more support. If it wasn't one of the best products, it didn't get as much support. And what kind of uh, evidence? I can imagine someone being really cynical about this and saying, yeah, that's good in theory, but are you sure that they were really unbiased? Well, just look at Nintendo Power. Cover of the first issue, Super Mario Bros. 2, Nintendo game. Second issue of Nintendo Power, Castlevania 2, Konami game. Third issue, Track and Field, also a Konami game. Fourth issue, Ninja Gaiden, Tecmo game. Nintendo-created games didn't get all the covers of Nintendo Power. They didn't get all the big features in Nintendo Power. So you can tell right there that they were being unbiased. And I've talked to people. I've talked to Joe Morici at uh, Capcom, who's in charge of their consumer division. I talked to Neil Heidkamp at Konami, who is responsible for their consumer division. Uh, Gregory Fishback at Acclaim, who was in charge of the company. Chris Garski, who ran the console division for Activision. And Bruce Davis, who was the CEO of Activision. I've talked to a lot of the people that were running these subsidiaries at this time that were making product for the NES. And not a one of them thought that Nintendo treated them unfairly. Certainly, many of them wish that they had more freedom here and there, because who doesn't? But no one ever said that they felt Nintendo had a bias. Okay, so pretty much everyone that they dealt with felt that they were treated fairly. Exactly, at least amongst the big publishers. Now, there were certainly some that did not feel they were being treated fairly. The most famous example of that is Tengen. Mm -hmm. Tengen was the home console division of Atari Games. Now, remember at this point, there are two Ataris. There's Atari Corporation, which was Jack Trammell's company, and they had bought the consumer division of the original Atari. And Mm. then he renamed his company Atari Corporation when he bought that consumer division. 
And this is the company that was making the Atari console systems in this time period, the 7800, the 2600 Junior, and which would later create the Jaguar, also the company that created the ST computer line. Atari Games was the coin-operated company, and it was the remains of Atari. Basically, when the consumer division of Atari Incorporated was sold to Jack Trammell, the remaining part of the company, which was mostly the coin-op division, but also a couple other things, was renamed Atari Games Incorporated to distinguish hmm. them. Then Atari Games was sold to Namco, and then about a year later, Namco divested itself of a majority holding and so it became an independent company that was 40% owned by Warner that still kept a stake, 40% owned by Namco, and then 20% owned by the employees of Atari Games. So it became an independent company, but with heavy investment from other companies. So then Atari Games, when they wanted to start creating console games, because they're an arcade company, they could not use the name Atari in the home hmm. because Atari Corporation had the rights. So they had to create a new name for their home console division, and the name they came up with was Tengen. Atari is a term from Go. It basically means you're about to be engulfed. It's kind of the equivalent of check in the game of chess, though that's not a perfect analogy because Go was a very different game to chess. But that's what Atari means. So Tengen is the center of the Go board. Hmm. That area is called Tengen. Okay. So they chose the name because it was another Go term. So Tengen was their home console division. And Hideyuki Nakajima, who was the president of Tengen, he came to Nintendo, to Arakawa and Lincoln at Nintendo, and he said, we have access to the whole back catalog of Atari properties. All these hits from the late 70s and early 80s. Mm -hmm. We deserve better terms than some of these Johnny-come-latelys that don't have nearly the catalog. And the name recognition we do. Mm -hmm. And true to what they always do, Arakawa and Lincoln and Nintendo said no, no special favors. So they signed the deal, but they weren't happy with the deal. They felt it was way too restrictive. And I think especially they probably felt it was restrictive because they really wanted to bring that Atari back catalog to the market. They had a lot of years of games built up. Mm -hmm. So releasing those at a rate of five a year... They're never going to get out all the games that they want to get out. And they feel like they can make a lot of money on all of these different games. That They couldn't do like a multi-game cart? No, not not at that time. You wouldn't have the memory for all of that on a single cartridge. Because you're updating. You're even, not with, just... even with a VCS. So, But you're not re-releasing re VCS games. You're doing much better versions to take advantage of the NES hardware. Okay, so they're doing the same kind of game, almost like uh, VCS game version 2 with new graphics, sound, keeping... Well, it's more that they're adapting their arcade games again. Okay. Because so remember, all most of these hits we're talking about that they have access to are the arcade games. They don't have access to the games that are unique to the home because those are with Atari Corporation, but they have the rights to all the arcade games. So they want to report the arcade games to the Nintendo. Plus keep releasing their new arcade games because they're still putting out arcade games. Okay. And they're also putting out Namco arcade games uh, at this time. They're no longer owned by Namco, but Namco doesn't have North American operation. And so they're also manufacturing and releasing Namco's arcade games. So they have a lot of current arcade games in the market that they want to put out from both Atari games and Namco. Plus, they want to mine some of the back catalog of both Atari games and Namco. They have the rights to Pac-Man, for instance, even though that's a Namco game. They're in a unique position that they have way more games to put out than they can ever hope to have slots for, so they want more slots. 
So they're not happy with the deal. So they immediately start trying to get around it. And so they try to reverse engineer the lockout chip. Oh, dear. And they fail. They are unable to reverse engineer it. So what they do, which is very illegal, mm-hmm. is they told the patent office that they were being sued by Nintendo. Mm-hmm. And that in order to defend themselves against the suit, they needed access to the patent on the lockout chip, which, of course, has all the schematics of the lockout chip. Which tells you how to reverse engineer it. And, of course, the patent office doesn't just take your word for it when you say that you have a lawsuit pending against you. You have to sign an affidavit, which is a legally binding document that says that you're telling the truth and that you can get in trouble if you're not telling the truth. So they presented a false affidavit to the patent office. Wow. To get a hold of the schematics to the chip. And then they reverse engineered it from the original plans. Nintendo wouldn't be very happy about that one. No. Nintendo sued over that, and Tengen countersued, and it was a big legal case for a couple of years, and Tengen finally lost because they didn't have a leg to stand on. If they had done a clean room reverse engineering of the lockout chip, they might have had a case. But you don't have a case when you just lie and steal the information. Right. If you sign an affidavit, you prove, and it's shown that you were not being sued by Nintendo, and you reverse engineer it, and Nintendo finds out and goes, How'd you figure this out? You, my patent? You, son, are going down. Yeah. But they had this lawsuit going on. Then Atari Corporation, the other Atari, also sued them because Atari was having no luck getting any traction in the market. 7,800 and the 2,600 between them started out at about 15 to 20% of the market and then kept steadily falling from there. So Atari sued Nintendo for antitrust violations because of their restrictive deals with publishers where they tie up all the publishers to these exclusive deals because of their price controls because of all of these things that are really very monopolistic practices so they've got that suit going then several attorneys general decide to go after nintendo for violations of antitrust law as well and get an ftc federal trade commission investigation going against nintendo for their bullying of retailers and their price controls and all of these other things. So at the beginning of the 90s, Nintendo is starting to get a lot of flack for its monopolistic practices from all corners. Now, they beat all of them. Tengen, of course, is an easy one to beat because Tengen engaged in legal activity. Mm-hmm. Atari, they thought sure, everyone thought sure they were going to lose the case against Atari Corporation. And in fact... This is the period when Nintendo started investing more heavily in Europe, which they had basically ignored to that point, because they figured they were about to lose a lot of profit in the United States because they were going to lose their monopoly. Mm-hmm. And so they needed to diversify. Yeah, invest in Europe to compensate. Stunningly, they were found not guilty. Huh. So they <laughs> they didn't have to change anything. The FTC investigation was the funniest one, though. The FTC did find some violations in terms of price fixing. They were looking specifically, they weren't looking at monopolies in general. They were looking at Nintendo's price controls and the way that Nintendo kept prices inflated by threatening retailers with retaliation, allegedly threatening retailers with retaliation if they lowered prices and that kind of stuff. They decided there had been violations. And Nintendo's punishment was that they had to give everybody who bought an NES game between whatever the range of dates were, a $5 coupon towards the purchase of their next Nintendo game. Oh no. Shameless promotion time. 
I mean, what kind of penalty is that? Because, you know, the margins on cartridges are huge. So mm-hmm. whether you're selling them at $60 or $55, you're still making a boatload of money. And so it's and a And it free... would just be a massive marketing ploy anyway. It's something that they would might want to even just do just on the pure, unadulterated hell of it. So everybody got a coupon, which just spurred more buying of NES software. So they, they survived all the challenges. But they did realize that they took a hit in the press and with the public and that there were only going to be more challenges in the future. So at this point, they did start loosening their grip. Now, in most of the interviews they've given, not to me personally, but just generally speaking, most Nintendo executives have denied that it was a result of these actions. They say that the timing was coincidental. I think when you get hit with an FTC investigation and an antitrust lawsuit and suddenly start engaging in less monopolistic practices, I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah. As it seemed to be pretty true about the early 90s is when you actually do need this stuff to loosen up. You need to expand the industry. And we see that with the Super Nintendo and the Genesis. We see that later on with the PlayStation, the N64, and the Xbox One. The first Xbox, not the one now. But... uh, (laughs) Stupid, confusing Microsoft branding. Yeah, I know. (laughs) You you get that kind of idea is, okay, we've had that baby out in the woods. It's had its controls around it. We need to let the kid explore a little bit. We need things to develop properly. We don't need to have such a heavy hand in order to make sure the industry doesn't self-explode. Sure, and I think Nintendo saw that too. I don't think they would have removed their most of their restrictions if they hadn't been given the push by the investigations. But I think it's fair to say that it was a combination, that they were getting this bad press and bad PR from these investigations and were probably going to be investigated more if they kept on as they were going. And I think they decided that the industry is doing pretty well, our third parties are doing pretty well and are chafing a little bit, and we've got this PR thing, so let's go ahead and relax things a bit. So they allow some of their most trusted third parties, like Acclaim and Konami, to manufacture their own cartridges on the NES. When it comes to the Super Nintendo, a couple years later, Nintendo keeps control of that. But on the NES now, they're letting people do their own manufacturing. And they eliminate the exclusivity clause of their contract. They still have the slots on the NES, but the games don't have to be exclusive anymore. They drop that out. And they generally loosen most things. They keep their content standards going. But then, as we've discussed before when they had the congressional hearings in 1993 and then a rating system was put in place after that. At that point, Nintendo dropped its content standards as well. So in the early 90s, they slowly loosened their grip. This really was important. And I think they also understood that if they didn't loosen their grip, they were going to lose out anyway. Because when Sega came in and started having a little bit of success, you know, by this point, the retailers want another company. Mm -hmm. Because the retailers... If anyone's chafing, most gamers, when they talk about this, they talk about the restrictive practices on publishers. And obviously the publishers would kind of like more freedom too, but if anyone was chafing under the system, it was the retailers. Because the retailers had no control over how they could price their product and position their product. They were completely at Nintendo's mercy. And so they wanted a solid 
competitor to emerge. And so when Sega came along, Sega became that uh, solid competitor and slowly opened up the market. And then once once you have two companies there, uh, each taking a little bit of the market share, third parties are not going to stay on just one system. They're going to they're going to go to both systems. And so if Nintendo insisted on remaining exclusive at that point, then that publisher is probably just going to say, well, we're going to go publish on Sega and we'd love to publish on your system, too. But if that's the way you're going to be, I guess we can't. And so, of course, Nintendo has to back down and say, OK, fine, you can publish on both. OK, before we finish up with uh, how they loosened up their practices, one thing that we didn't cover before, but I think we need to hit is the return policies that Nintendo implemented on retailers and forced them to do. Well, this is coming in at, at this same time uh, that we're talking about here in the early 90s. Basically, the other thing that Nintendo did that probably kind of their last big gift. We talked about how last time the transition between the 8 and 16-bit console market was pretty orderly. Mm -hmm. and that there wasn't really that big a dip at that time. And one thing that was kind of important to that, I think, is that at that time, retailers had very... If a retailer had a return policy, it tended to be a very expansive policy. Mm -hmm. They would basically take anything back and send it on to the retailer, or and send it on to the developer, uh, publisher. Because, again, uh, and I know we've hit this so many times, but the retailer doesn't take any loss for anything. So if a product gets returned, they send the manufacturer takes it. Right. They send the product back to the manufacturer and the manufacturer compensates them. So Nintendo, when we got to the transition to the 16-bit market, found themselves in a position where people that had bought NES systems like three or four years ago were returning them as part of a trade-in to upgrade to a bigger and better system. And that could have really just destroyed everything if everyone just turned in their old 8-bit systems in mass to get 16-bit systems. No one would make any money on the 16-bit systems because all of the value would be lost in the trade-in because the margins on console sales are so tiny anyway that if you had trade-ins like that, it would completely destroy the value. So Nintendo basically forced the retailers to set 30-day return policies. Hmm. And force that 30-day return policy across kind of the entire uh, entire industry, across all the stores. So it led to uniformity and predictability in return policies, which in some ways hurt the consumer in the sense that if it was a store that had a liberal return policy before that, then you lost a little something. But it also helped because it's standardized. And so if there was a store that generally didn't like taking product back at all for whatever reason, now they were kind of forced to take product back on 30-day terms. So it was kind of a, a wash in terms of how it helped the consumer. But without that, I'm not sure that the industry could have transitioned nearly as orderly in that time period. Nintendo broke the power of the retailer in a lot of ways. In the toy industry, they had something called December 10th billing. In the toy industry, you take a loss through the entire year. And then during the Christmas shopping season, November and December, you make all your money and make your profit for the year. So because the stores don't have a lot of liquidity throughout the year, what they would do is they would make all of their orders for product uh, sometime in the summer for the Christmas season. But then they wouldn't pay for any product until December 10th because that's when they would have their money. And so Nintendo didn't like that. And once Nintendo got some clout, they eliminated December 10th billing. 
which was important uh, for the industry as well because it made it easier for the industry to sell in product throughout the year. Consoles were becoming a year-round business during the Atari boom, and certainly cartridges had become a year-round business during the Atari boom, but it was kind of hard to have a continuous product cycle when retailers are conditioned to order in the summer, pay in the winter. So they got rid of December 10th billing when they got some power, and that was generally good for allowing things to grow. They, of course, reined in the return policies, which was important. And this made it so that retailers had to bear more of the risk, which certainly the retailers didn't like, but it meant that there was more chance for companies to enter into the business and thrive in the business. And this is, though, why retailers really didn't like Nintendo as well. So when there was a viable competitor, they... Flocked to them. Yeah, really did flock to them as much as they possibly could. They had to do it slowly because they couldn't just alienate Nintendo up front or Nintendo would cut off product and then they'd be in trouble. But that kind of helped that move. And so that softened things as other companies came in. And basically by 1993, Nintendo didn't have that kind of monopolistic control anymore. And, and that's a good thing. By that time, the industry was established enough that it could grow. And in fact, as we talked about last time, there was another mini crash in 1993, 1994. I mean, maybe saying crash is too big a word, but there was a downturn in the market. A recession. Exactly. And if Nintendo hadn't done what they did in the 8-bit era to grow the industry and mature the industry and ensure a smooth transition from the 8-bit market to the 16-bit market so that there wasn't a recession at that first transition, maybe the entire industry blows up again at the end of the 8-bit era. I think, therefore, that Nintendo has to be applauded for what they did. We look back now and we say, gee, that was controlling. Geez, who do they think they are? And from a modern sensibility, that's absolutely true. But there needed to be a period of incubation and a period of controlled growth before we just went to the Wild West, as the original Atari crash showed. And Nintendo, through its innovative, if monopolistic practices, was able to create a sustainable industry. And so when they finally let go at the beginning of the 90s, not entirely by their own choice, it allowed the industry to keep growing and keep moving from strength to strength. And that's why we still have a video game industry today. It's almost like a fire, in my estimation. It may seem like a weird analogy, but think of it this way. You start to have a little campfire out there, and you have to really pay attention, tight controls on it in order to make sure that it burns and grows properly. You could throw some gasoline on it, and it would flare up, and it would die out really quick, and you can't really sustain a fire that way. And that's a lot like how the VCS era was under Atari. It flared up, it was really hot and bright, but died out. It didn't have the underlying structure and ashes and coals in order to sustain the fire sufficiently enough. Nintendo goes along and it does the things that need to be done. It sets up a structure, say, like, uh, like you would bake a proper campfire with, and creates that so that once the fire starts going and burns and burns, it will sustain itself sufficiently afterwards. And then when it goes off from the 8-bit era to the 16-bit era, we don't need to have that fire pit with the structure and control anymore. The fire has been burning long enough and the structure is good enough that the coal can sustain itself even through a downturn. 
you ever have a fire that had were built really well and burned really good for a bunch of hours and you come back the next day even after it stopped you can throw some more logs onto that thing and it will start right back up again exactly so i think we should be perhaps a little kinder to nintendo in its earlier days because they were strict parents but you know when you're young you need strict parents and then once you're a teenager you can go a little hog wild exactly well thank you nintendo and anything else you want to cover? Nope. All right, where shall we go next time? Well, we've been kind of harping on consoles for a bit, and before that we'd done a fair amount with computers, so it's been a while since we visited the arcades, so I thought maybe we could discuss a very innovative company from the early 80s that really shaped a lot of what the arcade industry became after that, which, of course, I'm talking about Chuck E. Cheese. I've... Well, I've talked to Nolan Bushnell, who originally came up with the concept of doing it in the first place while at Atari, and I've also talked to Gene Landrum, who is the person that actually implemented the Chuck E. Cheese concept and ran the company in its early years. And they did a lot of important things for kind of shaping how the arcade developed as the 80s went on, and seems like a good topic. And we'll also get to talk about the tie-in between Chuck E. Cheese and Showbiz Pizza. Absolutely. Alrighty. We will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. (laughs) 